to forgive. Well, I ask you to turn with me tonight in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We will begin reading from verse 8 of Genesis 3. Last week we read verses 1 through 7. This week we'll read 8 through 24. Let us hear the word of God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman." And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Amen. Ending our reading there. Trust the Lord to bless his word to all of our hearts. Let us seek his face. Our Father, we do pray just as now as we come and having read thy word, 
We pray, Lord, help us to hear thee aright. Bless the preaching. Make it profitable to all of our souls. And equip us, O God, to be effective servants in this world. Speak, Lord, for thy servants here. And Lord, if there be any here or online that do not know thee, speak very clearly to them. For we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series that we started last week, and that is the that we're looking at major questions in the Bible. And we're just on the second part. Last week we were considering the question that led to the fall of man. And though we're not dealing with these questions really in any specific order, uh, it does make sense uh, to deal with the next major questions that come right after uh, the fall of man. So, just as by way of introduction, we are here in, again, what is such a foundational portion of Scripture. The truths revealed in Genesis 3 really in the first few chapters of Genesis, but especially in chapter 3, run throughout the rest of the Bible. And these questions that we're going to consider tonight, by my estimation, are some of the most heart-searching questions in the Bible. They are also some of the most God and grace-exalting questions in the Bible. I draw your attention to them. We have them in verses 9 and 11, and then there are other questions, but we'll be particularly focusing on verses 9 and 11. The first is the question God said to Adam, Where art thou? The second, or rather the third question, Hast thou eaten? As we go on, you'll see why I say those are so significant. This chapter in many ways hinges upon the questions that we'll consider. The other ones as well, but those two especially. As you read through the chapter, you see God leading His creatures along in these sort of question and answer format. And we're meant to take notice of that and meant to understand something from that, which we'll consider in just a moment. But as we look at these, Questions, I want us to look at them under this title, God's First Questions to Fallen Man. God's First Questions to Fallen Man. And the first thing I want us to see here is that these questions are for the benefit of fallen man. These questions are for the benefit of fallen man. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said in verse 11, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? These questions help us as we think through this chapter, and they reveal various things to us concerning man, concerning God, and concerning the purpose of these questions. And the first thing I want us to see here as we think about these questions being for the benefit of fallen man is that they reveal the sinfulness of man toward his Creator. They reveal the sinfulness of man toward his Creator. We read in verse 9, God's first question, Where art 
thou. And what that does is it points us back to the previous verses, even from verse 7 and onward, where we read, And the eyes of them both were opened. This is after they eat of the fruit of the tree, after they disobey God. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then we're told they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. So that's where they are. And, and how does this reveal the sinfulness of man toward his creator? Well, in verse 7, we see that man is guilty before God. And that, and that question, where art thou, points us back to that. You see what we read in verse 7, that the eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves aprons. They immediately know after they sin that they're guilty. And that's what we see as we think about the sinfulness of man highlighted here. We see that man is guilty before God. And this is highlighting a forensic fact in all of mankind, not only in Adam, but in every one of us here. No exceptions. Because as we read in Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam sinned, and you and I sinned in Adam as our federal head. And as we send in him, we become guilty before God. And these are our foundational truths as we think about all of mankind. That man is guilty before God. But also, we see that man knows he is guilty before God. You see that from the fact that Adam and Eve, they, they realize they're naked and they, they make an effort to try and cover it up. But then you see that even more clearly in verse 8. When they hear God's voice and they hide from him, they know that they're guilty. And in other words, that we're seeing here a picture of the conscience of man. That, that this is the reality of conscience, that man, as he has sinned before God, knows that he's guilty before God. And this was not only true of Adam and Eve. We're told the same thing in Romans chapter 2 concerning the Gentiles. Romans 2.14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. This is the universal fact for all of mankind, that we're guilty and that we know we're guilty. But not only that, we see that man is running away from God. He's guilty, he knows he's guilty, and he's running away. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden so that God has to say, Where art thou? Well, why is he running? Man is running away from God because he knows he's guilty and that he's unable to deal with that guilt by his own works before a holy God. He knows that God is holy. And he knows that he can't be in the presence of God in his own merit. In other words, we're seeing here the inability of man 
to solve the issue of his sin. And why is this significant to us as, they, as we think about this revealing the sinfulness of man and how this question points us back to these previous verses? Well, these three things are three things that every sinner knows. They knew them then, Adam and Eve, and they know them today. You and I know them. And every person you pass on the street knows them. And it's important to always remember this foundational truth when we come to witness to people about Christ or when we speak to someone who doesn't know the Lord in any way. We know, though they may deny it, that they're guilty. They know they're guilty and they're running from God. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter if they try to set before you some form of religion and they tell you, well, I'm not running from God. You know that in reality, if they don't know Christ, if they're not saved, they are running from God. And you see that testified to here. And you see it going through all the rest of the Scripture. And to what do we run as fallen men? To what do fallen men run? They run to trees and fig leaves. Why is that significant? Well, I suggest to you that you can see pretty clearly that fig leaves represent man's own merit. That as Adam and Eve sought to deal with their own guilt, they sow fig leaves together. They tried to cover up their sin with their own works. And then trees, well, why is that significant? Just notice that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve try to hide themselves among the creation that God has made as if he could not see them. Well, I think we're given a picture there, a very clear picture of false religion and man's effort to try and make himself right before God. And A.W. Pink very helpfully uh, comments upon this, and he says these words. He writes, quote, Church-going, religious exercises, attention to ordinances, philanthropy, and altruism are the fig leaves which many today are weaving into aprons to cover their spiritual shame. A very perceptive and, and pointed comment that he makes there. And I just pray that we would all get a glimpse of how true it is that as men are guilty before God, know they're guilty before God, and are running from God, they're running to fig leaves. And they're running to hide amongst the things that God has created. That's where false religion comes from. That's where paganism comes from. That's where idolatry comes from. Why is religion so universal? Why, no matter where you go in the world, do you find people worshiping something or in some way trying to get right or be right before God? It is because they know that they're not right before God. And in case you're wondering what altruism is, I didn't know what that word meant, so I had to look it up. It is selfless concern for the well-being of others. In other words, like humanitarianism. And it's just so perceptive because each thing he notes there, people by nature 
try to earn their own merit before God. It's part of our nature. It's part of the sinfulness of man. And so whether it's attending church, whether it's doing some other religious exercise like prayer or fasting, whether it's attending ordinances, my, how we, how we see that in certain churches, and especially of the Roman Catholic churches, and how the Mass is upheld as this, this means that's going to bring you close to God when it's just a picture of what you need. And theirs is not, of course, theirs is a perversity and it's vile. But without getting into all of that, the point is, is he's, he's highlighting these things that people do so accurately. Philanthropy and, and selfless care for others. These are all the things that man will try to do to deal with his guilt. And yet, they're just fig leaves. They're just trees. They don't hide you from God. And they don't give you what you need before God. And so, these questions help us to see the sinfulness of man. They reveal the sinfulness of man. But also, they reveal the grace of God toward His creatures. They reveal the grace of God toward His creatures. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is that God, He is coming to them instead of immediately condemning them. Take note of that when you read these verses that they are not coming to God. God is coming to them. They're hiding from Him. They hear His voice walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hide themselves and the Lord says, Where art thou? That is the grace of God. What are we being pointed to here? We're being shown these foundational truths. God comes to sinners. Sinners don't come to God. And you see that throughout the rest of your Bible. God comes to sinners. They hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Where art thou? God coming to them. You see that illustrated through Genesis. You see it illustrated in the New Testament. You see it, you see it illustrated in life after life. What do we read about Abraham? That God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. A land of paganism. And where, what do we see happening to Jacob? We were there just a few weeks ago. We see him dealing with the results of his sin. Lying, sleeping with nothing but a, for a pillow but a rock. And what happens? God comes to him. What do we see with the Apostle Paul? On the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute the church of Jesus Christ, what happens? God comes to him. You. In your life. You weren't seeking God. You weren't trying to find Christ. You weren't trying to pursue the right means of knowing the Lord. Not until he came to you. Not until He showed you His grace and your need for Christ. Amen. And it's the same for me. None of us were pursuing God. None of us came to God. God came to us. What do we read of our Lord that illustrates this so well? This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners. We weren't begging God for a Savior. We weren't petitioning the Lord to to send this Savior. This Savior comes in grace and mercy to fallen humanity. They reveal the grace of God. Sinners don't come to God. What Adam and Eve do do in in verse 8 just illustrates what all of mankind do. Romans 3.11, There is none that seeketh after God. And what does that mean, that there is none seeking after God? Well, it doesn't just mean that you are not able to come to God. When you think about this, this is a very important thing to, to remember as we think about the sinfulness and the depravity of man that is revealed here. It's not just that you're not able to come to God. You are not willing to come to God left to yourself. It, it's not just a matter of ability. It's a matter of the will. You don't want God apart from His grace. Lost sinners don't want Christ apart from the Spirit speaking to them and waking them up to see Christ. It is only when the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration, it is only when the new birth is given that you are made willing to embrace Christ. This is really a side note, but I feel it's important to point this out as we think about these questions Revealing the grace of God. Notice that God does not ask the serpent any questions. Have you ever noticed that? That he asks questions to man, but he merely, simply issues the condemnation to the serpent. And there's a lesson for us in that. We know that there are fallen angels. We know that they fell because they sinned against God, and yet... God did not deal with them in the same way. He didn't deal with them in a wrong way. He dealt with them according to His justice and according to His perfect will. But I just think you ought, that we ought to take notice of that, that, that there's no questions asked to the serpent. There's no grace in that sense shown to him. The perfect justice of God is executed upon him. And yet for reasons only known to God and His purpose of His own glory, He chooses to be merciful to man when man deserved nothing but condemnation. And so these questions reveal the grace of God toward His creatures. But also, they reveal the condescension of God toward His creatures. Not only the sinfulness of man, Not only the grace of God, but the condescension of God toward His creatures. This is really just honing in on these questions. Why does God ask questions? God already knows the answer to these questions. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Thou knowest my thought afar off. God doesn't need to ask any questions. That means something. That means that these questions are purely for their benefit and ours. He's not asking them where they are or who told thee that thou wast naked or hast thou eaten of the tree because he needs to know it. He's asking them to get them to think. 
He's asking them for a distinct purpose. And in that we see the condescension of God. Condescending to the capacity of his creatures. Condescending to their needs. Condescending to them in mercy. Because he could have just come and and just outright condemned them. They didn't deserve his condescension or his grace. They had sinned. And he had told them in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. They knew what they were doing when they did it. But what a lesson. What a lesson that is for us as we look at the rest of the Bible. Just in terms of God's condescension here in these questions. When God asks a question in the scriptures, it is not for him, but for us. And that's just becoming more and more, I'm just becoming more and more aware of how helpful that is when you study the scriptures as we go through this study. And how passages often, when there's a a big question in them, they sort of hinge on that question. And when you really focus on the question and the purpose of it, how it opens up the passage and what's really going on. So let's just remember that. That this is a mark of God's condescension, even as he reveals himself to man, asking these questions. And in particular, to these fallen creatures, it is a matter of great condescension. God is in pure grace, condescending to them rather than condemning them. So these questions are for the benefit of fallen man. But secondly, I want you to see that these questions are the backdrop for God's gospel. These questions are the backdrop for God's gospel. And a backdrop being, if you've ever been in a diamond store or or, or seen this, very often what they will do to show you the beauty of a diamond or the beauty of some precious jewel is they will lay out a black cloth. And they'll put the diamond on the black cloth on the dark background so that you can behold the beauty of the diamond all the more. Well, in a sense, that's what God's doing here with these questions. That's what he's doing with this picture. He is getting ready to present the gospel and you are going to see the beauty of the gospel as it so brightly shines in light of this dark background. So these questions are the backdrop for the gospel Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the promise of a coming redeemer that was going to redeem these fallen creatures. And why is that important to these questions? Because these questions... God is using these questions to lead them to that point. That's that's the point here. That's why they're the backdrop for the gospel. And I want us to note several things here about these questions again. Is that they are designed, firstly, to lead man to self-examination. They are designed to lead man to self-examination. God asked Adam, where art thou? Why is that Why is God asking that? He's asking that because he is giving Adam a divine call to examine himself in light of where he was in relation to God. God doesn't need to know the answer to this. 
is purely for Adam. And so when he asks Adam, where are you? He's asking him, where are you in relation to me? The question, the answer to that question should have been, could have been, as Adam examined himself, where are you, Adam? I've sinned. I'm in the place of sin. And I've tried to cover it up on my own. And I'm hiding from you, Lord. That's what he could have said. In a sense, that's the answer that God was looking for. These questions were designed to lead him to examine himself. Where art thou? But they are designed to lead man also to honest confession. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten? Hast thou eaten? God knew that he had eaten. So why does he ask the question? He asks it so that Adam would honestly confess his sin. This is a merciful opportunity for Adam and Eve to confess their sin. For he also says to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? He gives them this opportunity to be to just confess to the Lord what they had done. And yet here we see what man does if left to himself when confronted with his sin, don't we? Both of them pretty much respond in the same way. They cast blame. They cast blame. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. You think of the hymn we sang, use the line, uh, provoked him to his face. What a provoking to God's face that answer was. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. Not only blaming the woman, but blaming God for this sin. That is what men do. That's what you do, apart from the grace of God. You blame others and you blame God for your sin. That's what I do, that's what you do, apart from the work of God's Spirit. And the woman the same way. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And what a lesson that is for us. Because, in a sense, there's some truth in those statements. The serpent did beguile her. And the woman did entice Adam to eat. But at the same time, the buck stops, as it were, with them. They were personally responsible. And so, though Satan may, may lead us and tempt us to sin, at the end of the day, we're responsible for our sin. But people do this today. People do the same thing today. This is just so helpful when we think about the nature of fallen man and his depravity. What do people say today? Well, it was, it's my environment. That's what really caused me to be the way that I am. It's the environment that I was brought up in. And again, it's not that there's not some element of truth in that. People do if they grow up in a certain environment, they do take on certain things. But at the same time, 
They, they forget that it, they are personally responsible still for their own sin. And so they blame their environment. People blame other people. Really, it's my wife's fault that I spoke to her that way. She, she provoked me. Really, it's, it's my co-worker's fault. He always says that in a certain tone, and so I blew up at him because he said that that certain way to me. What are, what, are people, what are we doing when we do that? We're revealing that we're just like fallen man here. Or at least for those of us who are saved, we're revealing that there are remnants of that nature left in us. Because we have been changed if we know the Lord. We have been given a new nature. But we still are tainted by sin. And then the other excuse, I was born this way. I was born this way. How often do you hear that today? Fallen man entering into the most grievous kinds of sin and abominations before God that not only hurt themselves, but hurt others around them. Not getting into specifics. But what will they say? Well, I was born this way. And they'll even say, God must have made me this way. If I struggle like this, God must have made me this way. People who practice sodomy will say that. But if you reverse it, at least it used to be, if you reverse it or at least apply that same logic to another area of sin, they wouldn't agree with it. They may eventually. But if you said, well, I, I'm an adulterer, I was born this way. People wouldn't give you the same, the same credence. But they'll do it for someone who practices sodomy. Or someone who engages in some other sin. And it's all just a testimony. It's just a testimony to the fallen nature of man. And it's the same thing that you see here in the garden. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. These questions were designed to lead man to honest confession. But man left to himself just casts the blame and provokes God. And I want to make a sideline application here to all of us. These questions are to fallen man. But they have an application to redeemed man as well. And what I mean is, as we'll see as we go further, we've seen that they're for examination and confession, but we'll see that they also are for repentance. And examination and confession and repentance are lifelong disciplines. And graces of the Christian life. First John makes this very clear to us. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. And He's just highlighting there that, that confession of sin is, is a part of the Christian life. 
And so I, I say this because this is what really struck me when I came across these questions a few weeks ago. Particularly, I would just illustrate this with verse 11. Hast thou eaten? You think of, yes, God asks fallen man that question. But these questions are written for us too. For us to consider. And when you read that, you can, you can identify with that. The Lord asking you, have you eaten? In other words, have you done that which I've told you not to do? And there's not a day that goes by that we do not fall into that category where we have done that which God has told us not to do. And I just highlight this because it's an opportunity when we're reading our Bibles and we see things like this to take the divinely given opportunity to examine ourselves, confess our sin, repent, and freshly appropriate the blessings of the gospel to our soul. That there is a way of reconciliation to God. So when you read that, hast thou eaten? Just remember that. That the Lord's asking that question not to heap guilt on you, but to lead you to the only way to free you from your guilt, which is through Christ. They are designed to lead man to self-examination, to honest confession, but also they are designed to lead man to true repentance. That's what the Lord is doing when He's asking these questions. He's leading Adam and Eve along. And we see that, that as He goes through these things, they don't repent initially. They, they cast the blame. But these questions and the judgments that follow are given to them to stir up hatred for sin and for Satan and to lead them to repentance. As he goes on in verses 16, he says, moving on from the serpent, unto the woman, he said, and he gives these judgments, I'll greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And he goes on detailing the misery that's going to be in the world now because of sin. And what is he doing there? But he's, he's highlighting that all of this misery is a part of the just judgment of God but that it also serves to remind fallen man of the way it has all come about. And is designed to, to get them to the point where they hate sin and they hate Satan who tempted them to sin. I think this is helpfully illustrated in Luke's Gospel in a question of our, that was asked to our Savior in Luke 13. We read there, there were present at that season some that told him, that is Christ, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that ye were that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What is our Lord doing there? He is highlighting 
the purpose of suffering in this world. Its cause is sin, but its purpose is to lead men to repentance. And that's what our Lord is telling us here in Genesis 3. These judgments come upon them as, as just judgments from God for sin. But they are designed to lead them to be grieved over sin. And to turn from sin. And then, again, we're faced with this foundational truth. This comes up all the time with people. Why is there sin in the world? Sin is in the world because of man, not because of God. And suffering is a result of sin being in the world. That's the foundational answer to that question. Man may not like that answer, but that's the divine, inspired, true answer to that question. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Because sin is in the world. And really, rather than asking that question, you ought to be asking the question, what does God want me to do in light of this suffering? Repent of my sin. So that's what these questions are designed to do. He's guiding them along, leading them to these judgments to give them grief about sin so that they will then repent of their sin. But finally here, they're designed to lead man to full reconciliation. That's the, that's the purpose of all this. They're designed to lead man to full reconciliation. Why does God come to them in the first place? He comes with the object, the goal, the purpose of their reconciliation in view. That's why He comes. Otherwise, he, He's not just coming to them to mock them. He's not coming to them to just make fun of them and, and give them some kind of false hope. He's coming to them to lead them to Genesis 3.15 and to bring them to reconciliation. And so God has come to condemn their sin in accordance with His justice, but also to preach the gospel as a display of His grace. What does He do? He gives us the promise of a coming Redeemer in verse 15. How do we know that's a promise of a coming Redeemer in verse 15? Well, because we're told in Galatians 4 that in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son made of the seed of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. That's the divine interpretation of this verse. So He gives the promise of the Gospel. In verse 15, that this seed is going to come and he's going to crush the tempter's head. And then he gives a picture of the gospel in verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. What is God doing there? He is picturing his gospel. God, as the chief actor, what are Adam and Eve doing in that picture? Nothing. And that's the point. They're recipients of this picture. They don't do anything. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. In verse 7, Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves and tried to make fig leaves 
to cover up their nakedness. In verse 21, the Lord God makes coats of skins and clothes them. In other words, the Lord would have had to slay animals in order to make those coats. He would have had to shed blood. You can see that very clearly and no doubt you have, I trust, heard something of this before. That God is here picturing His gospel with the shedding of blood. Substitutionary sacrifice. And then taking the coats, the skins of those animals, and clothing these sinners. We have here a picture in simple seed form, but a picture nonetheless of the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness being our clothing, being imputed to us to reconcile us to God. The gospel promised in verse 15, the gospel pictured in verse 21. And this is ultimately why he asked these questions. And Adam and Eve both embrace the promise and the picture of the gospel. How do we know that? Well, I believe it is the clear inference from verse 20 and chapter 4, verse 1. In verse 20, notice how it just kind of breaks in here in the midst of, of this. It's kind of just there. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I suggest to you there that that is Adam laying hold of the promise. Promised in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And Adam calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. In other words, in very simple seed form, Adam is laying hold of God's promise in verse 15. That there's going to come this seed of this woman that's going to redeem us. I believe is a clear inference. Why else would that verse be in there but to reveal that to us? And then in chapter 4, verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And that is Eve laying hold of the promise. The seed was promised in verse 15, and in verse chapter 4, verse 1, she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She, she's looking forward to this seed that's going to come. She falsely thinks that it's going to be Cain. We know that it wasn't. But she's still looking forward by faith. And that's the point. She's trusting in the promise of God, which is what all the Old Testament saints were doing. So they both embrace the promise. And the picture of the gospel. Because in verse 21, though they have nothing to do with the making of these coats and skins, though they have nothing to do with them being, being made and being clothed, yet we see them being clothed with them. And in that you see them embracing the picture. That they're not refusing to be clothed with these garments. But that the Lord has made them and clothed them so they embrace the promise and they embrace the picture. Well, that begs a question. What changed between verses 12 and 13? What changed? They were rejecting the condemnation, saying, no, it's not our fault. 
we, we, it's, it's the woman's fault. It's the serpent's fault. And yet now we see them embracing the picture and embracing the promise. The Spirit of God moved them to repentance. And you have here in these, this short passage of Scripture, you have such a picture of God's gospel that's just carried throughout the rest of the Bible. He comes to man in his fallen state and he leads him step by step to confess, to examine himself, to confess his sin, to repent of his sin, and to be reconciled to him through Christ. And it's the same thing repeated all throughout the Scriptures. And so, the purpose of these questions was and is reconciliation through the Gospel. Adam and Eve were reconciled. Though they had to await the fulfillment of it, they still were banished from the garden to await the coming of the Redeemer and the fulfillment of their reconciliation. And in similar ways, we're in the same place. We're awaiting the fulfillment of the full reconciliation. We're not there yet. We're awaiting glory and full intimate communion with God that won't be hindered by sin. But I want to ask a question as we come to a close. We see that they were reconciled. But have you been reconciled? Anyone watching online or that will watch this service or this message at some point, and anyone in here, have you been reconciled? Will you be reconciled? Can you hear God asking you these questions tonight? He is not asking them for His benefit, but for yours. The Lord asks you, where art thou? Hast thou eaten? And the implied questions are, will you repent? Will you be reconciled? Because that's the offer here. He, he's not saying these things to mock sinners. He's saying these things that sinners would be reconciled to Him. And so, what are you to do? You're to embrace the promise. You're to embrace the picture. What are we saying? You're into it. You are to embrace Christ. That's what you're to do if you don't know Him. If you're not reconciled to Him. Embrace the promise. Embrace the picture. Embrace Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee that You have 
revealed such a glorious gospel to us. From the very opening chapters of this blessed and holy book that has come down to us from heaven, Lord, you have seen fit to give us such wonderful pictures of thy gospel grace. And we thank thee for what we've considered in these questions. And Lord, how they, they just cause this chapter to open up to us, to see the grace of God revealing his gospel to, to Adam and to Eve, but to all of us here tonight and to all who will read that portion of scripture forevermore. Lord, we are thankful that you offer a free gospel, that you call all creatures to faith and to repentance, all fallen man. Lord, we know you have to give the effectual call. And Lord, we pray if there was some if there's someone here tonight, or if there's someone watching online, that you will give that effectual call. Oh Lord, we pray, move upon them. Bless them with and enable the Holy Spirit enabling them to embrace Christ here offered to them. Oh, Lord Jesus, Thou hast said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Lord, please drive that home to all of our hearts, but especially to anyone here who does not know Thee. Oh, God, please hear our prayers. Receive our thanks for the word and bless us as we go into this week. Help us, O oh God, to meditate on thy gospel every day and to know thee ministering to our hearts every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.